Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Making a Scene. My name is John Jufre. Thank you for joining me today. As always today, in Making a Scene, we are going to talk to an unorthodox thinker, a creative troublemaker, and a unique character. And we're going to go into what their X factor is, the unique touch, the unique artistry that they bring to their work that comes out of their character. We're going to talk about how they developed that and what kind of a scene they want to make in their work, in their lives, in their community as they move forward and figure out what story they want to tell. As always, the show today would not be possible without the Artworks Group. What is the Artworks Group? Well, if you are involved in the creative marketing or event gig economies, you like making cool shit happen for cool people who appreciate it and it makes the world better, more beautiful, more functional, more fun, then you are probably connected to that economy. And we are all freelancing. We're all freelancing. And some of us work for agencies. Some of us get residencies with creators or with companies. But the fact of the matter is it's a gig economy and it's very competitive. And things like Fiverr have kind of come in and devalued a lot of our work. And it's made us competitive. And I really prefer community and cooperation to pointless competition because if anyone uh, listening has had creative or marketing experience. We are better together. We make great things together. So we're trying to build the partnership economy and that's what we're doing in artworks. So if you are a freelancer of 30 years or you just got started 30 seconds ago, you should check out facebook.com slash groups slash artworks group where we're getting people paid gigs, having amazing conversations. We're collaborating on our own projects, honing our crafts and posting spicy memes. Check it out, facebook.com slash group slash artworks group. There will be a link down below. And on to today's guest. We're going to be talking to a very good friend of mine, someone who I've really gotten to know very well over this last summer. His name is Sonny Sue, and he is a strategic designer, and he's an entrepreneur. He's the founder of Paradigm Innovations, which is an agency that I've personally seen up very close, and the work they do is tremendous. And they've done work with all kinds of people. They've helped Fortune 500 companies. They've worked with Duke University's uh, medical innovation uh, projects and department. And they've helped startups such as Nobo, New Run, Morning Brew, shit you've seen on Shark Tank. They've helped young companies like this and dozens of others gain funding. I've seen it happen before my very eyes, gain millions and millions of dollars of funding from angel investors uh, and, and really launch these companies and make them beautiful as well. Uh, he's also the host of the annual Innovation Summit here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he speaks all over the place when COVID's not happening, so he'll be back to that soon. He is my great friend and collaborator, Sonny Sue. You can learn more about his company, Paradigm, down in the links below at paradigm.cx, and you can also find all of Sonny's social media links and personal projects down below. I hope you enjoy my interview with Sonny Sue. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Making a Scene. My name is John Jufre. Thank you for joining me today. As I said in the pre-roll intro, today we are talking to entrepreneur, strategic designer, all-around badass individual, Sonny Sue, the founder of Paradigm. Sonny, thank you for coming on today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Right on, man. So, I guess we'll just dive right into it. I just, I use the, uh, the SD word, strategic designer, and people probably listening might be thinking, oh, so he, he makes really pretty pictures, but 
strategically. You know, they might have some misconceptions about what that means. And I'm sure you encounter that a lot in what it is you do. So maybe we could start with an intro where you tell us a bit about what you do and, and what strategic design is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'll, I'll start with kind of the basics and you let me know if you want me to elaborate anywhere. But, you know, whenever you're creating a new product, brand, or business, obviously you think, hmm, here's all the strategy components, right? Like, how do we go to market? Right? What's our financial model? How do we make revenue? How are we scalable? And then there's also the design components of it, right? Um, what does it look like? How does it work? What are its features, right? How do people use it? How does it change over time, right? And a lot of people think of these as discrete bits, right? Uh, you've got the strategy, the strategy part where it's all about like positioning, planning, coordination, you know, how do we compete? How do we, how do we target? You've got the design parts. How do we create an experience? How do we create an impact? How do we make it memorable? And if you look at some of the best products, brands, and businesses out there in the world today, even in the past 20 years, the next 20 years that will come, it's really about bridging the gap, right? Um, I'm sure no one would disagree that, yeah, you could have a beautiful product, but if it doesn't work, if it doesn't actually sell, if it doesn't engage the market, if people don't actually want it, no matter how beautiful the design is, can you really say it was a good design? In some ways, I almost believe that all design should be strategic design. And I think the world is shifting towards that direction, realizing that the way you are intentional about what you create and how you create and why you create it is actually going to fuel your strategy. It's the, it's the best strategy, right? Good design, in my opinion, is the best strategy. And bridging the gap between the two it's a home I'm really comfortable with. I love that. And I've, I've been up, you know, up kind of close seeing how you guys do it. And clearly that everything you make looks very good and, and functions very well. And it has that really good design element, but you've also helped a lot of different companies get like, what is it, like nine figures of funding and they appear on Shark Tank and they get all these investors and everything. And it's like, clearly it's, it's also um, strategic. You did a, you, you thought about why you were making it look good or function well in this way rather than this other way. Cause there are a lot of ways things can look good and there are a lot of ways things can make money, but there are very few ways that things can make money and look good. Right. Now uh, you hit the nail on the head. Beautiful. <laughs> so I guess, Man, I'm curious what got you into that? Because in my experience, it's like you have obviously this business half and then the art half. And in, I mean, I, I feel like I relate to that. I'm similar, but most business people don't care about the art side and most art people don't really care about the business side. So where did that interest in both really come from? And, and like, when did young Sonny, when did five, six, 10-year-old Sonny realize, like, I want to go down this path? I think it's important to start off with a lot of people feel like they're not supposed to. They feel like they can't. They feel like these two different sides don't touch, right? And if there's anything you take away from you know, this episode today, anyone that's listening, uh, is that shove all that off the table, right? Uh, a good artist must also be a good businessman, right? And a good businessman has an art to the way they do their work. And... I think that's something I realized uh, early on. I remember, um, I think maybe around like 
middle school-ish, uh, I got involved in uh, a art convention downtown. Uh, I, I'm based in Raleigh. Uh, and there, that was the first time where I saw that, wait, this art, drawings, all of these things that I do, people will pay money for it. They find some kind of value out of it, right? As a, as a young child, it gave me some sense of validation and you know that kind of snowballed over time but you know I would I would I kept going back to this convention and perfecting my art and my craft right good quality art but also good business uh and you know before I even knew the term marketing before I even knew that what I was doing was considered business right I started realizing okay well I have to plan all of this inventory to make sure I've got enough funds to produce all this stuff and make sure people even know that I'm going to be at this exhibit, right, in the three months leading up to it. Um, I got up to the point that I was able to make $3,000 in a weekend. And as a kid, like, that was super mm -hmm. fucking awesome. How, how old um, were you when you made that three grand? Um, by then, I was basically, like, near end of high school, early college. Um, more money than I fucking had in high school. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I was putting it all right back into it, right? Uh, in high school, I also started doing like a t-shirt company for fun. And I think after a year, like just about everyone at my school was wearing one of these t-shirts. I'm exaggerating here, not everyone. But, um, you know, business helps make your dreams possible, right? And art helps make your dreams something that other people also care about. And so combining the two in a t-shirt business, right, allowed me to figure out how do I, as a kid who has no money, uh, get pre-orders and get people super excited, right, and showing off like what's on the t-shirts and then using all of the profit made off of uh, the pre-orders to actually order even more shirts. Because I, after the first round, I realized everyone wanted more shirts after they could actually see it and see other people enjoying it. Um, this was also right around the time where I, you know, was deciding what I was going to major in in university. And I was honestly pretty lost because I didn't even really know what design was until like senior year. Well, I knew like graphic design, everyone knows graphic design, right? But we all have this impression that it's just like making pretty pictures, right? Um, and uh, it wasn't until I went to design camp uh, over at NC State that I kind of solidified my thinking that, wow, wait, this design discipline is truly this magical combination of science, technical, right? You, there, there's bits of psychology and cognitive, um, cognitive theory and all of those things kind of all blended in. You have to know a little bit of business, a little bit of engineering, and you pull it all together to create things and ideas that didn't exist before, but are not only valuable, but also feasible at the same time, right? You can have something that makes money and is also gorgeous. And in fact, doing both helps it be more beautiful and make more money at the same time and bring more value into the world, right? Uh, so that's, that's kind of how all of that came together. Um, I actually ended up going to NC State for industrial design, uh, which is the design of products, brands, and uh, systems at scale, right? You've got your craftsmen and your artisans and they make things once, right? Where they make things multiple times and there's a lot of variation in them. Right, industrial design is a little bit about the art and business of how do you put things together so that they can be replicated in a way that increases its value as quantity increases. And uh, I didn't realize how relevant that would be to the rest of my life, but I'm really glad I went down that path. I want to circle back to the uh, you know designing and scale element of this, but but first I want to go back to that art convention 
because I, I know you personally, so I know there is a eclectic, diverse mix of skills and disciplines that you were learning and you were doing, you're doing some music stuff, you were doing illustration, you were doing all kinds of things. Um, what, what was the kind of first art that you fell in love with and, and how did you really develop that and where is that at today? Yeah, I think, I think visual communications are, are something that uh, hits us so deeply. Uh, that, was, that was probably my first. I remember back in kindergarten, I was, I was the kid that was drawing on all of my homework and yeah, I got my homework done. And I'm sure I drove the teachers nuts, but they were like, I, I guess you did it right. So I can't really say anything about this homework uh, <laughs> being covered in drawings. Um, and, uh, you know, that just continued to evolve over time. And I think uh, either it was because of the way my brain worked or because I developed the skill that it altered the way my brain worked. I think I really became very much of a visual thinker, a spatial thinker, um, I think in models and uh, paradigms, <laughs> I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. uh, and it all stems from the visual communication aspect of it, right? Uh, unfortunately, this means I'm a little bit weaker at uh, very linear thinking and be able to like write sentences out <laughs> and that turn into an essay. But at the same time, I believe with visual communications, you can communicate so much more information in just a single glance. Right, because you you have multiple dimensions that you can use, right? You can imply the nuance of meaning through symbolism and just like what people are looking at. You can evoke a feeling, even if people don't know the language that they're reading. And uh, this is the first time, like talking to you here, that I really processed that visual art was kind of my first art, and it's uh, continued to blossom into everything else. Because eventually I come to realize that you really do have to be multidisciplinary to create the best design, right? If you're designing a store, you're designing a website or an app or an IoT product or an appliance, it's not just visual, right? There's an interaction component to it. Uh, there's, there is writing, right? There's uh, headlines and instruction manuals and copy on the website uh, and being able to bring in all of the different senses from sound, right, and music, to the visual, to the interactive, the physical, and the kinesthetic. Uh, I think it's really important to have a holistic design, right? Can you imagine like using a coffee machine, but like you can't read any of the instructions and it's boring as hell. And, uh, oh, wait, that's how they currently are, right? But I think people <laughs> are changing and I think we're working on it and we're demanding that things are better and consumers are realizing that when we ask for better, when we demand nothing but the best, right? The business world, the industry, the market responds in kind, right? And we put our dollars where we want to see progress. I love that because that's, I mean, I, I feel like business owners in general get a bad rep where they're like, oh, you're dirty capitalists. You don't care about the consumer. You don't care about your employees or whatever. But I know that at minimum, at least for you, and I, I'd like to think this about myself as well, but at least for you, um, that's not where your head's at at all. Like when you, your approach is always on like, well, yeah, we want to make the client happy. We want to make our money. Right. But also things need to be fair for our, uh, the customers of our customer, right? Like the end user can't be getting this app we're designing or this product that we're helping to, to, uh, to, to figure out here and then not know what to do with it. That'd be really stupid. And there is so much of that in our economy. And I think it's, probably a little, uh, probably a little overhyped, you know, oh, you're a dirty capitalist, whatever, but, but there, there's something to it. There is a little bit of a problem with it. So like, 
is is that like a common language thing? Is that like people aren't taught strategy or design or, or strategic design? Like, why do you think we have coffee maker instruction manuals that are just fucking stupid? Well, I think part of it is uh, with technology advancements, right? Like you got to make sure you hit the bottom line first. And now that we have enough advanced technology, we can start worrying about some of these other things that improve the overall quality of the experience. But I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here because you you it. touched on a little bit of like the overall meaning of it all and kind of like why, why it ended up this way. And I think that stems from the dichotomy between a human-centered design, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard a lot about over the past like decade or two, and also humanity-centered design. Uh, there are two sides of the same coin, micro versus macro. Human-centered design, understand the psychology, right? understand the behavior of the individual, the end user, the customer themselves, right? But then also, on the other hand, uh, when we look at humanity-centeredness, how does what you're creating affect society and shift culture and progress or what we call progress? And that's where we get into how art design business really is a means of making happen the things we care about most, right? The world, the future is not something we predict. It's something we create. And it's the people who are taking active role in actually creating something we are actually the ones defining what the future becomes right so it's through design and art and business strategic design where we are literally defining what society will be and will become and i think we do have a responsibility there of course it becomes shaped like the way we want it to be our ideals our our values based on how we grew up and the art that we like but i think it's very important to be conscientious and intentional do we want a world where we've got ugly ass street lamps that no one can understand and everyone's confused all the time about whether they can park here or not and then they get all these tickets, right? Or do we want a world where our objects in our environment and the things we interact with on a daily basis actually are tools that make us better and help us do more things, right? In, in the ways that we want them to do, right? And help us enjoy life to the fullest. And I think um, as, as creatives, troublemakers, you might say, uh, people who are creating the future, we do have a responsibility. Oh, in fact, I'd almost even say we have the privilege of being able to define what society becomes. And I think that's what makes this so, I guess, so like poignant to me. Um, but I think it stems from that dichotomy between uh, the, the balance of being human-centered and humanity-centered, you know, where does that lie, right? Are we even asking ourselves the right questions? Um, but also knowing and trusting that like what we're creating, uh, especially if it uh, is really widely renowned, right? Um, is that it will have an effect on people and what they believe is the benchmark or what is expected or what is standard, right? As the appliance has become friendlier, more engaging, more intuitive, right? As manuals become things that you actually wanna look at, or maybe you don't even need the manual because the product is designed based off of human nature, right? You look at it and you just know how to use it. Um, and I think these are all things that, uh, there's, there's an asymptote here where we're, where we're progressing towards better things or what we think is better. So what would, so, there are a lot of great things you said there. And I think that the, um, in terms of like, oh, okay, all of our streets everywhere, basically everywhere in America are ugly. So how would we fix that? Well, that is, that's a huge task to fix. And it's like, 
there there's so much embedded like bad design and bad philosophy that goes into a lot of the things that we do that's an issue for scale so that's really where that designing at scale strategic design at scale really kind of comes in i would imagine so what would be what would be kind of that that step or that i guess maybe you call it a paradigm shift or something but where how how would we as a society or as at least a a group of creatives who are tangentially associated and working on that how how would we go about fixing that design at scale of things that are already kind of messy where there are already bad standards yeah i think we're already amidst it i don't think it's something that's just like flip a switch it's fixed right it's a complex problem a wicked problem even right there is no right answer and likely anything that you do is probably also going to create other problems so i think the key for it is not to focus on fixing it but i think the key is focusing on being intentional and being considerate of as many variables in the system as possible so that you can manage that risk right um a really cool project that uh, my team and I over at Paradigm are researching and developing, um, and it's highly related to the legacy that I want to leave. Uh, right now, I think we don't have a true definition of innovation, right? And if you think of uh, other disciplines like marketing that are like fairly new, and it stemmed and grew off from other disciplines, it's really kind of starting to reach some maturity. Uh, and all of that came from having a standard around well, what, what is marketing? What are the methods? What are the processes? What are the standards? And we have something similar with innovation um, that currently doesn't fully exist. And so I want people to be able to know uh, where an innovation stands in relation to another so that we can build on the shoulders of giants. So we can build off of what we've learned from prior innovations. And we call this the human experience index. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, everything we create is for the human experience, right? We want to save the turtles so that generations from now, people can still enjoy turtles with their kids, right? And we still have this beautiful mother earth that we can enjoy and live in and prosper on and all of these things. And I think it all starts with being intentional and deliberate uh, and, and conscientious about what and why and how we innovate. And I think giving people the tools and the language, right? Uh, because right now you, you ask 10 people, oh, what does innovation mean, right? Uh, and you're gonna get 10 different definitions. Uh, and so I think this becomes a tool, an index, a starting point uh, where maybe there's eight to 12 different categories, like the cultural, the environmental, the political, and maybe a hundred criteria in each that um, add or subtract your score. But Imagine being able to use this tool to compare a chair to Tesla, to a phone, to a trash can, and at least have an idea of where these innovations stand in relation to each other. How are they each innovative in their own way and help you be able to be more intentional with anything you're designing or creating or bringing into this world. Determine, you know, how do I make sure I'm being both human centered and humanity centered? So we don't end up with more monstrosities, more systems, becoming so integrated so quickly into our society with all kinds of unanticipated effects that really are taking its toll on our people and the human experience. Well, it seems like the biggest example of one of those kind of systems would be like Facebook. Um, yeah, social media. I didn't want to name any names, but we all can see the elephant in the room. Yeah, it's why I mean, that documentary, The Social Dilemma, I think it's called is, is really big right now. And someone who like, you tangentially work a lot in social media. You have to prepare things for, you know, websites and things like that. And I work, 
you know, even more in the nitty gritty of social media. And like yesterday for me was like, I'm wondering how you would kind of deal with this on a mindset level. Like 90% of what I do, I'm really, really proud of. And I absolutely love at Logos Productions. And I really, that last 10% kind of flips back and forth. And that's the social media component. Cause it's like, there's almost no better way to promote people, especially if they're digital creators um, and, and personal brands, which is what I kind of specialize in artists and, and everything like that. And social media is very effective at doing that. But yesterday I saw like Twitter was censoring like one of the oldest newspapers in America. They were censoring Kanye. They're, they're censoring all kinds of things. And this has been happening for a while and it seems to be getting worse. So it's almost like, I know it's a false dichotomy to say, well, I, I just won't use it then. Or, or, well, I guess I have to deal with it. There's always the solution of, well, we can, you know, maybe someone, perhaps us, someone could make something better down the road. But how do you have any kind of dilemmas with how you are engaging with systems that currently exist? And you know, in your head, there's a design somewhere for a better system, but you have to use the shitty one, sometimes for your clients, sometimes for your clients, customers. How do you kind of deal with that? Yeah, we have a we have a concept here at Paradigm called Blue Shift and Red Shift, right? Uh, blue Shift items are things that are closer and more immediate. They're a little more tangible. Sometimes they're things that you just have to do to get by in the meantime, so you don't run out of resources, right? Uh, and then Red Shift are things that are like further out, more aspirational. Like um, this might be a bad analogy, but let me uh, you're in a boat, right? And um, and it's filling up with water, right? Blue shift things are there to keep you alive. You've got to keep shoveling the water out of the boat. But if you're only focused on blue shift things, uh, then you could be veering off course, right? And going the entirely wrong direction. Uh, and that's the red shift part of it, right? Uh, so you have to have both, right? Making sure you're on the right course, but also taking care of things in the meantime. So like, because if you're only focused on navigating well, then your boat's going to sink in like five hours, right? Um, and so... For us, I think actually social media is uh, a big component of what we do as well. But I don't think the problem is the concept of social media itself. I actually think social media came out of uh, good intentions, right? I think it was a lack of, uh, well, one, uh, there's no way they could have predicted all of the <laughs> unintended consequences, right? But right. now that we know them, we can be more, uh, we can pay more attention to it, right? Uh, if we actually have the systems and the references and that that's where I think the index comes in where at least it can help. Um, but then the other part of it is uh, I, I think it's not what social media could be, but how it currently is. Right. I think we all have a responsibility to keep trying to get better. Um, and I think everyone truly does want it to get better. I don't think social media uh, or, or at least the people who created it and the people who are currently working on it, I don't think they're evil. Right. right. But it, it's like the overall system at, at scale itself, because of all of the unintentionality that went into various different things and variables and parts of the system that weren't fully considered in us. Right. Because uh, we're all human. Right. But if each human like misses like one percent where they were just like, oh, I'm just a little too tired to really consider like the implications of this. Right? that compounds over time. Right. You know, because things at scale get bigger and bigger at scale. Right. Um, a. a a hole is a uh, uh, bad analogy. Okay, anyways, um, but I think this like is a hundred people missing one percent. You've missed a hundred percent, right? Exactly, exactly. You're building a you're building a skyscraper, and every 
every uh, every floor you build is an inch off, eventually the whole thing falls over, right? And so I think that's uh, that's what we've got with the current like social media dilemma that I think is uh, very important to consider. And you know, we're going through it too. I think one of the biggest things that we've really noticed is um, a lot of social media right now is so based off of like the dopamine feedback loop and uh, their highest incentive is uh, uh, advertising because that's where they make most of their dollars, right? And so it becomes this attention economy. And uh, we're actually working on a project. Uh, I can't disclose everything about it, but it's called Gravity. And we're realizing that, you know, what is the best kind of sale, right? Someone who wants to buy something or get involved with something of their own accord, right? What about the best kind of marketing, right? Marketing where people are coming to you uh, without you having to directly go out there and market and like yell at people about it. And so, you know, gravity is this underlying force of attraction that can and does influence everything that we do, right? Brand, interaction, relationship building, communications, image, PR, events, all of these things, right? there is an underlying force of gravity and we can be intentional about it, right? We could design our systems that build our gravity and eventually get it to this like organic advocacy force over time. Or, you know, we can just keep doing all the traditional means. But I think through gravity and building relationships and there's a platform that we're working on, I think we can tap into other feedback loops, right? Other feedback loops that are a little more wholesome, right? Like um serotonin or oxytocin right ones that are more based off of like actual genuine human connection imagine imagine if people uh are working with each other and going to each other not because someone paid five thousand dollars to get this thing out in front of everyone's eyes but because of the way communication travels and navigates and gets to people and i know this sounds super idealistic but if you actually run the scenarios it actually makes a lot of sense and this becomes the future that I think a lot of people would rather have, right? One where you are connected and working with the people that you genuinely actually want to work with. And we're not all just throwing tons of dollars to compete for each other's attention. Um, and then I think in that regard, you know, the incentive for social medias right now is to take up as much of your time as possible to buy as much of your life uh, in your eyes, right, as possible. But with the shift, if we can shift how social media is used and what it's incentivized by, um, then I think we can get towards one that uh, is incentivized by building better relationships, more higher quality relationships where people actually care and actually have some feeling for each other. Uh, so it's not gonna be an easy task. It's kind of a big challenge for sure. We're taking baby steps, but be on the lookout for that. I love that. You know, that's, uh, that's a project I'm, I'm really excited for some, some of the behind the scenes stuff and it's, it's going to be fun. But, um, so I am, I am a curious on more of a personal level. These are, um, these are mindsets. These are beliefs. These are sort of, uh, you know, I call it maybe your X factor that, that most people have not thought about even in your industry or your field. And I know that you had a lot of, um, you had a lot of experience working at some Fortune 500s doing design and strategy, and you worked with Duke University. Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear a bit about what it was like working at such um, um, big and entrenched institutions, and then why you're now working on, a, uh, on an agency that's helping younger ventures and startups. And is that shift related to where this unique mindset kind of grew out of? 
uh, it's definitely related and it definitely had influence on it. Um, you know, uh, going into university and everything and uh, being at the age that I was, it was super exciting that, you know, I had the opportunity to collaborate with the innovation team at Coca-Cola and Deutsche Bank and Bosch and LG and stuff. Super fun. And I was like, oh, these are companies that everyone knows, right? Uh, this is the coolest thing ever. Um, it was really cool getting to help them create new markets, identify new customer segments and experiences, create new products and brands from scratch, you know, projecting out 10, 15 years into the future, right? There's this really cool project um, that I had the opportunity to do with Lowe's about the future of the garage. We got to go and do a ton of research uh, with some like two, 300 different like garages and um, learning like where trends are going, how things are shifting and evolving and how Lowe's could change like the culture of it through the things that it creates. Um, I know it's really fun, but um, on, on the granular level, uh, I think, although it's really fun and you get to work at such big scales, I think that inherently was the part that um, I felt like I wasn't able to make as much of a direct human impact on the individuals. And uh, the timelines for me, at least at this age, I felt like I wasn't ready to be able to commit to that, right? Like one of the things I was working on at Bosch, like uh, the future of the dishwasher and creating ways where, you know, people who are either pre-family or post-family um, are able to not only conserve more water because of the way we use dishwashers and the way we wash our dishes and just redesign that whole system. Um, although that was really awesome and stuff, like it's not gonna come out for another 15 years, if it even comes out. And uh, in the meantime, I knew something was missing. So I started like searching. I started doing some freelancing, working with other startups. Uh, and it was really just for fun at first. Um, but when they started winning competitions like left and right, and they started getting funding, like um, one company, New Run, uh, raised like half a million off of uh, my team's like design work. And, and I was like, wow, this is super validated. Like this, it, and, and being able to hang out with that founder and learn about their mission and their dream, I realized like, wow, everyone has a vision or uh, everyone has a, a dream of how like they want to change the world and make it better in their own vision, right? Um, and I was well equipped to be able to help them do that, to help them realize that. And uh, I really like that feeling. And that moment when someone comes to you, um, and they tell you that, you know, because of you and the work you did and the skills you brought to my team and how much you cared or how much you saw the reality and what I saw, uh, that you've changed my life path like forever, right, for the better. Um, that's, that's really encouraging. And, you know, I enjoyed the feeling enough to uh, build up my client portfolio to the point that I could go full time and then eventually start a, building a team around that. So there, there are two kind of uh, personnel, I guess, elements that, that that kind of brings up, which is, you know, when you're working with ventures and startups and, and younger entrepreneurs, it's, it's probably often their experience, like you said, that other people maybe haven't seen their vision yet or believed that they could do it or, or that with a little bit of help or strategy and design that their thing could be real, right, and could actually help people. So um, first, I'm wondering, how do you, um, or, or what is it, what is maybe your process? I don't know if there is a process, maybe it comes naturally to you, but 
can you talk a bit about how you get to know that founder and how you know, like, okay, this vision is good and we can make that happen versus this vision might be misguided. I'm sure you hear like a thousand bad ideas all the time from people pitching their products to you. So how, how can you kind of tell the difference between good and bad? And then how do you really hone in on those good ones and, and help with that motivation and that almost sort of like leadership and collaboration? Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of facets to that question. Um, and I'd say the first part of it uh, is really that, you know, when I first started out, I took all my experiences from all of the different startups that I started for myself or all of the other startups that I freelanced and had like worked for on the side and all of the corporate experience that I could bring in from like the corporate ventures, mergers, acquisition side of things, all, all of those things coming together. At first, it was all intuition for me. Like I, I knew it so deeply and innately and had that confidence that like, you know, I was the only one that could create it. Uh, some three, 400 startups later, right? Small businesses, whatnot. Um, I realized that, hey, actually there are some patterns to this, right? And so over the past like four or five years, we've been developing what we call our shift method. That's where the blue red shift stuff comes for, right? You start with synchronization and you build a highlight and blah, 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 blah. But we realized we could standardize this method right, this process and continuously get benchmarked results every single time. And, and to be able to know that and have that kind of confidence that if you're the right type of person and you've got the right type of idea, and we work together, you will succeed, right? And I think that's really cool. Um, one of our values is uh, anything is possible. And that really stems from the idea that, uh, yeah, although there are terms and uh, conditions, <laughs> and different means uh, that you have to be willing and accept in order to make that possible, but really anything is possible. And I think we go through so much of our lives where people tell you, oh, you know, this concern, that concern. Okay, well then address those concerns, set up contingencies, make sure you've considered those risks, right? And I think having a process, a checklist, a, a way that you can go step-by-step step and be confident that if you invest in this time, money, effort, knowledge, stress, uh, that you will get closer to what you're looking for, right? I, I think that really helps someone who's never done it before or someone who's only done it a few times before and is just really unclear where to go. They're, I think their biggest concern is like, what if I fail, right? What if I'm doing it wrong? And I think the biggest value we can bring from that due to our experience with, you know, like, like Morning Brew, um, they grew to 13 million in like two years after we did their brand, right? Or, or Nobo. Uh, they've been on Shark Tank that got invested in by Mark Cuban just earlier this year. They raised another three million. Uh, we did a lot of their design, their packaging, and so forth. I think all of those experiences become things that we can give to other people. We can be the team that I wish I had when, like, I think right around when I graduated, I uh, did a string of, like, six different companies, one after another, right? One was, like, an IoT wearable. One was actually a three-in-one coffee roaster grinder and brewer appliance right all of those companies like paradigm kind of ended up becoming what i wish i had when i was running those companies and uh if nothing else we can do that for other people now that's amazing i love i love that i didn't know that you started those those six startups so that's that's a oh yeah yeah you've heard about odyssey down and, on Claire and all of those yeah i'll tell you about them sometime beautiful well, um, so then the next kind of personnel thing is now you have a team because I know at first it was uh, it was like just you just kind of ragtagging. And I guess before we get to the team, there's like 
doing it all yourself is exhausting. Oh boy. Oh, tell me about it. And we've talked before about burnout and you've told me your story about burnout. And I'm trying to. Yeah. Everyone's sweating right now. Right. Like from their brow. I've been working like 15 hour days. I haven't had a chance to go to fucking Lidl and get food. So it's like, I feel that on a visceral level. So how are you dealing with burnout and what's your philosophy around that? Well, so, you know, go, go back a little bit in time right around when I was able to like start freelancing full time, I got a little eager, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't regret it. I'm actually very thankful I went through the gauntlet like I did because I think that may have been the only way I was really going to learn the limits of me and my capacity and those boundaries, right? And those became lessons that I'm glad I learned then rather than now where I have the responsibility of so many other people's livelihoods, right? Like I, I can't afford to mess up now right? But then when it was just me, that was the time to experiment and figure out like who I really am and where my limits are. Um, I got so excited to the point that like, I I swear I was working like 100 plus hour weeks, uh, seven days a week. I had like 10 to 20 different projects. I was waking up at like three or 4 a.m. to answer calls from like Hong Kong, bending over backwards for anything and everyone because I just loved what I did so much. And yeah, the passion was there, the dream. I was living the dream, right? Or so I thought, but it wasn't sustainable, right? And that's actually something, that's actually a big component of strategic design is, okay, scalability is important, right? Profit is also too important, but sustainability is important as well, right? If you're over here killing yourself, you can't sustain that for too long, right? And I was slowly, slowly like, you know, falling apart, um, mentally, socially, whatever, I thought because I could work seven days a week doing what I love that I should and I could and why not, right? And eventually I, um, you know, you, you would kind of, I, I would see where, where the limits of that were and finally, uh, finally when I missed my first big deadline, I was so ashamed, so embarrassed and, you know, like my pride as a professional was like, I can't do this this is not acceptable, right? And you know, so I went and I had to make it right. And I knew I had to have systems and processes in place to manage risk, make sure everything was on track. And I realized that I can't do everything. And that took a lot of uh, trust, I guess, and confidence in myself, actually, to be able to feel secure working and delegating with other people who you know, each have their own skills and dreams and hopes and collaborate together so that we could really become a team and actually do more and create more impact, right? I can only do so much as one person, just like anyone else. And that's why we build teams and we're inherently social creatures. Uh, And so there becomes this synergy when you start, whoops, I use that word. Um, There becomes this effect that happens when you have people coming together, complementary skill sets and capabilities that allow you to achieve so much more, do so much better, right? Yeah, yeah. And so how, what, what, is it, um, what has it been like transitioning from a solo uh, operator into having that team? How do you, um, like, it, it must be quite the process to not only bond with a founder or an innovator or an entrepreneur and, and see their vision, but to then communicate not only their vision, but also your vision for paradigm itself to a team and, and sort of keep that energy going. And I know that's, that can be a difficult part for a lot of people because no one wants to be the boss where it's like, oh, my employees or my freelancers or whatever, they, 
this is just a job for them. They hate it. They're going to leave, whatever. No one wants that. So how are you kind of working with your team so that they feel the vision, they feel the purpose and they're, you know, they, they love working for Paradigm? Well, what's really interesting and, um, you know, don't, don't take anything I say uh, as like, oh, it was smooth. It was easy because it certainly wasn't. And even today I am learning and getting better every single day just by interacting with my team and continuing to be thoughtful about how we experiment. But um, a lot of the processes that we actually do for the entrepreneurs and partners that we work with uh, are very focused on their vision, right? Their mission, their, their dreams, their passions. And uh, without understanding that, you know, you can't actually get inside someone's head and be able to work on their behalf and help them make that real, right? Because like, you know, I could design the most beautiful, awesome thing that makes tons of money or whatever, but if it's not their vision, right? If it doesn't align with that founder, then it could all be for not, right? Because then, you know, they're just not gonna be super into making it happen. Um, we use those same processes with our team members, understanding where they want to be, right? Just like you can use a brand canvas or North Star canvas for a client, another business, a brand, uh, all of the individuals on our team, they too have visions and hopes and dreams. And the more you can understand about them, right? Uh, and be vulnerable about yourself and share those things too, then everyone becomes more aligned and we can understand how all of our paths project out into the future, where they intersect, where they start to go apart. And, uh, be able to have more solidarity when working together. I think uh, alignment rather. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Cause I'm, I'm in that phase too, where I'm starting to learn uh, uh, about having a team. And honestly, I've been watching a lot of the things that you've been doing and, and taking some careful notes. And it seems like uh, the people who work with you, they, they, they really enjoy it for the time that they're there. And um, it's, it's quite an innovative approach. You, you do this, um, kind of like the roster method. I don't know if you call it the roster method, but you have like a roster of, of many different kind of freelancers that you cycle through, right? Is that something you want to discuss? Yeah, so we actually look at it um, sort of like we're building a community, we're building a family, we're building a system, right? And I believe that no one should ever be locked into something that they don't truly also feel just as strongly about, right? And so uh, the way we look at our team member development journey, I guess you could say, is actually through brand buy-in, right? And we have a whole model for that where people start out at the outside fringes where we're both testing the waters, right? It's not just about us and it's not just about you. Some of these other businesses, they make people jump into a full commitment, like basically a marriage proposal right from day one. And the same way we don't feel like that's fair for our partners and clients, right? It's the same thing for our team members. A relationship must develop over time. There is the dating period, right? There's talking about what kind of commitment, right? It has to be mutually aligned. Otherwise, it's abuse. Otherwise, it's not actually beneficial to everyone involved. I think any agreement or deal or partnership that people get involved in should truly raise both parties up at the end of the day, right? Everyone should actually be getting better. Everyone should be gaining. And so we bring that premise into everything we do. So the outermost ring of paradigm is the roster. That's part of our community. That's part of being in our orbit. And once you start building that relationship, imagine everyone's on their own ladder and they're all climbing, right? You, it, it is a two-sided thing. We give a little, they give a little. And if it matches, then we go to the next rung of the ladder. And slowly that builds over time. So through our roster method, that's how we do everything from building new partnerships, uh, creating new vendor partnerships, right? Uh, team members, uh, 
designers, strategists, consultants, it all starts from like that first date, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really like that idea because it's like, if you want to go get a job somewhere, it, it's like you said, you got to marry, like, I don't want to marry 7-Eleven. I don't want to marry the gas station for 50 hours a week. What? Why can't we just show up and, and do right, a little right. bit? Right, right. Like, why can't we just start out with a little bit? And if it works, okay, let's go to the next step. Let's have another date, right? And then a year later, now we're in a committed relationship because we both truly want it. And we're truly aligned. Anything else is actually not ideal for either party involved, right? I don't want someone being in there feeling like, uh, they're, they're forced to do certain things, even though it's not fully aligned with them. And, you know, because I don't fully understand what their needs and wants are. And, but now they're so committed and so much of their livelihood is tied in with like the benefits and salaries and compensation and, and just the work they do and even their identity that they almost like feel stuck or trapped, right? I, I don't think that's fair and it's not in everyone's best interest, right? The key here is sustainability. The key here is longevity. And just like we build partnerships for life with our clients, we do similarly with our team members, right? Once you are in orbit, once you're part of the family, right? Unless you explicitly want nothing to do with us anymore, we're always here for you and we'll support you in all of your endeavors. We have lots of team members that have been with us for a little while, decided to go try another job, have come back, have moved around, right? It's pretty freeing. And as, I think as long as everyone's honest and transparent about where they wanna be and what they want out of life, what they want out of the engagement, the partnership, I think it's a recipe for success, or at least so far it has proven to be. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you use the word and, and one of our mutual friends, Garrett Daly, he's coming on the show later next, uh, next episode. I think he's booked on, he likes to say partnership economy. Uh, I don't know if he thought of that or you thought of that, but, uh, it's like moving from a gig economy or, or an attention economy, all that stuff to, to really a partnership in a community economy where it's like, look, man, we all want good things to happen we all want everyone's business and everyone's income to be taken care of and we all want the world to be better and have better products better art better communities better events and maybe the way that we do that as you know two individuals isn't i own you for 50 hours a week at minimum wage maybe it's you know we do some other some other way and then you can go do that with five other people and that's how you're happiest and why wouldn't we do it that way right it seems like we're, we're married to these kind of uh, uh, antiquated ideas of what things need to be. But it's almost like, to me, like COVID has been an eye-opener for a lot of people with that. Like a lot of companies have started letting people do remote work, things like that. And they're realizing, oh, people can get their jobs done way quicker than we thought. And for some companies, that's going to be a bad thing because that means they're just going to start laying people off or giving them busy work or expecting more work for the same pay. But I feel like a lot of companies are going to take that as an eye opener to be like, okay, well, maybe we can have more of a partnership or community based employment model. At least I hope so. Oh, yes. And it certainly has been for us. And I think that's a shift that all businesses are heading in, even before COVID. COVID maybe accelerated it or opened our eyes to uh, some businesses that were maybe a little more stagnant or uh, needed some more inertia, right? Uh, to to kind of like push them into this new decade or two of the partnership economy I think it's going to continue heading down that direction but I think just like we're being more human-centered humanity-centered in uh what we're designing right the organizations we're designing and building are also becoming more humanity-centered are also becoming more intentional about both the micro and the macro human experience I love it
Well, we're coming up on our hour here. So I guess to, to close, I'll ask two questions. One, we've, we've covered a lot of like the scene that you want to make, the legacy you want to leave. But if there's, there's anything, anything else, I mean, you had HXI, you have Gravity, you have all these companies you're helping, but, but is there any, any other element to the scene that you want to be making with your life and your work? Yeah, it might be really good to mention um, probably one of my dearest children, uh, Nova. And that's the idea that um, everything is improved by a stronger feeling of communitas. Uh, and you know, the more belonging people feel, the, the more egalitarian they'll behave in the communities that they're in. A lot of that has to do with like scale, uh, a lot of it has to do with intention, but ultimately it's really about the design. How do we design our communities, our spaces that we live, work, play, and learn in, the spaces that we do business in, um, entertainment, you know, all, all of that in a consideration. Ask me more about it sometime, but um, I really think Nova is a better way of living. And, uh, you know, there's a real estate component to it, but it first stemmed out of uh, a a realization that Paradigm actually didn't need a physical office slash studio. We tried it for like two or three years in many different shapes and forms. Uh, and then we ultimately realized like we didn't need it, but we wanted it, right? And why did we want it? Because of the community, the social aspect. And so we realized there, there's gotta be a way that we can get the physical space without actually contributing to our business model and development, right? The community we're building around ourselves like during COVID, we've really been building a very powerful digital community, but you know, there's, there's something that you can't get digitally that you can only get in person. And uh, that's kind of what birthed Nova. And it's evolved a lot since then to start taking on like uh, residential elements of it and even urban design, like working with cities and governments to promote economic development. Because if people are staying there longer, if people are happier, right? Economic productivity goes up, right? We start to not have as much brain drain in some of these cities and towns, such as the Raleigh Triangle area where there's tons of universities and a lot of people leave because they feel like there is no community or home here, right? Although at the same time, a lot of people are also moving in. I think uh, Nova can become a key player in designing the communities, the ways we wanna live uh, based on, you know, the ideologies that we really feel are important to us. I love it. And I uh, honestly, it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege that I get to, you know, occasionally collaborate with you and, and get to see all these projects developing firsthand. And it's, uh, it's really been great getting to know you better these past few months, but also this past hour. And I'm really grateful that you came on the show. So thank you for coming on, man. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, then I guess to close, um, we can send people to paradigm.cx if they want to learn more and they can join the Frontier Facebook group and we'll have links to all of that down below. Those are probably the two best ways to learn more about Paradigm. But if people are interested in you, Sonny, where is the best place we can redirect them? Any other projects that you'd like them specifically to look at? What links should I put up for everyone? Yeah, I'd say um, you can check out my personal website. Of course, it needs to be updated by uh, www.sunny.su. That's with U's, not O's. Uh, and uh, that'll link you to my LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, whatever else. Uh, and we can go from there. Um, and then uh, I've got a gift for all of you. Uh, I don't know. I didn't mention the Vortex at all. My bad. 
but go read more about it at uh, www.paradigm.cx slash vortex slash enter. Um, and that's just sort of this virtual co-working space accelerator community uh, that's highly curated with founders, entrepreneurs, innovators who have a humanity-centered focus. And it doesn't matter what stage you're at, uh, the people in there are there to help you. They're just like you. And everyone can share tips and wisdom, just like if you've learned anything on here today, we do tons of community-based uh, and tons of free events within the Vortex, uh, masterminds, uh, discussion groups, roundtables, and things. And we're constantly bringing in all kinds of really cool speakers. Um, there's just, it's, it's just a resource hub for anyone who's trying to build something uh, that they think will change the world. And I believe a rising tide floats all boats. So help us rise the tide. Here's a fun plug. If you're listening to this on day of publication, this is probably going out at 4 p.m. Eastern on the 16th of October. If that's you, you're listening to it now, join it right now because I'm going to be on an event in the Vortex at 5 o'clock. Hey. But I'll be in there all the time. So come say hi to me and come say hi to Sonny and check him out at all his links. Uh, Sonny, thank you for making a scene today. Lovely. Thank you. All right, guys, that was a very fun episode. Uh, like I said up top, Sonny is honestly, he's becoming a very good friend of mine. I just met him this year, but we uh, we collaborate a lot here together in Raleigh. And it's, it's really great that he came on the show today. And I hope you guys gained some value out of that. Um, he's, he's pretty wise and skilled beyond his years. So I uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you want to follow Sonny and learn more about him and Paradigm and all the other shit we talked about in the show, links below, check it out. If you are a gig economy worker, especially if you're a gig economy worker who listened to this episode, it's all this concept of gravity. It's this concept of the partnership economy. You get it. You just heard us talk about it for an hour. Check out the Artworks Group. If you are interested in working for companies like Paradigm or a company like Logos, very similar companies, you can check out ways to do that in the Artworks group. And also many other agencies, many other creators will be hiring out of there. We've gotten six people paid work already as we create this sort of partnership economy. So if that sounds like it's for you, you can check out facebook.com slash groups slash Artworks group. Getting quick because Sunday is spicy meme Sunday. So I'd hop in now if I were you. All right. If you're interested in anything I'm doing, my links will also be down below. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And I will see you next time. Thank you for making a scene with me.